Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Headspace, the brand new monthly podcast from Prospect Magazine, with me, Tom Clark, Prospect's brand new editor. We publish pieces which challenge you to think differently, and each month we'll be bringing several contributors together and asking them, "What's the big idea?" For this inaugural edition, I'm thrilled to be joined by three contributors to October's Prospect. Joanne Paul, who has a new book about Thomas More coming out and has written for us about his utopia. David Willits, the author and former Conservative minister who's written about the May government and its inclination, which he sees as a duty, to get stuck into a proactive industrial policy. And Rachel Holmes, the leading feminist biographer who we've asked to tell us whether or not women leaders have suddenly become the new normal. So let's start, as we mean to go on, with a really big question. Daydreaming about perfect worlds, a healthy source of hope or a road to dangerous delusion? Joanne Paul, a lot of people look back at the 20th century and think of Lenin, Mao and Pol Pot and think... Perfection, no thanks. But in what you've written for us, you've been keen to defend the original utopian and his book. Yes, that's right. I think what Moore was attempting to do in Utopia was not so much set out an ideal that we should be striving towards, but rather uh, setting out a sort of a mirror, like a satire, that actually serves to critique or even criticise some of the political and social norms that we have operating in our society. And it's a long time ago, 500 years ago... What sort of hypocrisy or scandal was he trying to highlight? Well, in particular, he was trying to show the artificiality of social convention. So trying to show that two things in particular just aren't real, and that's private property and social inequality. Those things are invented by us. They have, they have no real reality or traction outside of the world that we've invented for ourselves. And so he's just trying to show that those things don't actually exist. They don't have any real value. David, you'll be aware there are people, and fairly prominent amongst them at the moment is Hilary Mantel, um, who look at people like Thomas More and say, well, there's a a rather dangerous mind peddling dangerous delusions. Are you inclined to think of utopias that way, or, or do you think it's good to dream? I think it is good to dream. Of course, for me as a conservative, often our utopias exist, but they're in the past, not the future. And we look back on what we imagine to have been better ways of doing things. And I would argue that a lot, many more utopians are doing that than one would expect. A lot of the boldest revolutions are attempts to what they would see as reform something that has gone wrong and get back to a previous better state. And the balance between projecting your visions onto the future and onto the past, I think, is a fascinating question. Joanne, do you think there's anything in it? I mean, we're already talking 500 years ago. Yes. If we talk about Thomas More, you 
flick at Plato's Republic. Is there any sense that even then he was being nostalgic, do you think? Well, I think what's interesting about Moore's Utopia is that it isn't um, looking forward or looking back, right? His snapshot is of his own time. It's a place that's geographically distant, not temporally distant. And that's why I think it serves more as a, a mirror or a critique than it does some goal, either looking forward or looking back. And what do you think now? Do you think it's a useful tool, Rachel? What really interests me about it is the way in which it is being responded to and interpreted now. Really useful tool, fabulous read, of course, and always wonderfully satirical as well, which is so enjoyable on its own terms. But what strikes me is the sort of um, ennui about being able to speak from a position where having enough should be something that sort of makes you bored, as it were, and that you want a little bit of variety and diversity in your life. I mean, it's the sort of argument of uh, you've got to get caught in the rainstorm to appreciate the bath. Well, you've got to have the bath to be able to enjoy it. And I think one of the things that really interests me uh, and about your approach to it is this question of it's all very well for those of us who have enough and, and the plenties in the current life to aspire towards the transcendental in the next. But for those that don't, I think the idea of, of the modern response, which seems to be coming through, which is we don't want everything to be the same. We don't want a managed estate. It's, it's too boring. It's too suburban because we need a bit of variety to make life exciting. For people who don't have anything, life is quite exciting enough. So I think there's a, there's a different narrative <laughs> that is cutting across and it depends on who's actually doing the writing. I think you might get a very different perspective if you asked a poet or a writer uh, or a journalist who's ended up in the jungle what their position on ideas of projecting utopias are. It's funny, it makes me think of my my former colleague um, at The Guardian, Simon Jenkins, whose answer to questions about Brexit and whether it was a good idea or not, well, they kept changing his mind. At one point, it was basically, this will make for a very good spectator sport and be very, very interesting. And I thought, this makes someone in a fairly comfortable position. Um, but David, do you think there's something in our politics at the moment that means people really are, you know, 20 years ago, we talked a lot about managerial politics, but now Theresa May's drawing sharper lines. Jeremy Corbyn obviously is in a different place entirely from the um, mainstream as it has been. Are people wanting kind of big visionary politics at the moment? Well, certainly I think the political divide in British politics is getting wider and the the collapse of the sort of Blairite project has been um, very significant indeed. I often used to get this from journalists who complained when you were when I was a working politician and a minister, you know, it's all so boring and why aren't you doing big, bold things? So I would say, look, it isn't the job of politics to provide you with ideological spice. And the <laughs> uh, people don't necessarily... And uh, I don't actually believe Britain was better governed when there was a Labour Party on the serious left and a group of people on the right of the absolutely sort of opposite extreme. I'm not, that may have provided more exciting ideological clashes. There's no evidence it's a better society. In a society where you have a centre-right party versus a centre-left party might well be one where you just have a, a better, uh, more worthwhile, more fulfilled lives. I would hope so. But would you then, Joanne, have less daydreaming and less room for utopia? 
Moore's intention in Utopia is is actually to um, create a sort of middle ground. As the character Thomas More in Utopia says, it's all about making things as little bad as we can. Um, so actually, the intention is is not to set out this big grand vision, but rather to take the ideas from that vision and translate them into something achievable in our own world. I think there's been another change in the culture, which is that it is harder for politicians to win arguments by appealing to grand visions or big ideological principles. I think another good thing that's happened is that as we have become a more diverse society, the test of kind of public reason, the test of what kind of arguments you can appeal to has become more rigorous and more empirical. And that also yeah. changes the tone of politics. At this point, I'm going to effortlessly segue into your own article, um, David, because whereas most of us look back on the unemployment, the strife and the strikes of Margaret Thatcher's Britain as a non-utopian time, there was arguably underlying the Thatcherite economic agenda, a highly idealised and maybe even utopian idea about how the economy was supposed to work. And I think in what you've written for us, you're saying maybe that that highly idealised set of assumptions um, should give way for something more empirical, as you put it. Yeah, of course, I worked for Margaret Thatcher, and I'm proud to have done so. And she was always, in practice, a very effective and very pragmatic politician. You've got a very shrewd sense of how far you could push things and no further. I wouldn't say she was in a utopian. She did have a picture, well, I remember she once called, when we were talking about it, Ordered Liberty, mm. and she did have a series of heroes in the great tradition of the Scottish Enlightenment, obviously Adam Smith and David Hume, and then into the Victorian period. She did have a picture of kind of what Britain's underlying characteristics were, and she was trying to be true to them. Just like de Gaulle said he had a certain idea of France. Just trying to remember. So hers was a picture of the kind of the national character, which she saw as enterprising and brave. For me now, turning to industrial policy, what I noticed is that we were trying to dismantle in the 1980s failed interventions where you'd ended up just writing checks to prop up failing companies. But the fact that that is what had gone wrong has, I think, inhibited a grown-up debate about what an industrial strategy should be. And it should not be keeping lame ducks going. But when you look at the journey that all the big advanced technologies have taken into the marketplace, notably in the US, they've all had enormous amounts of federal support as state support. And I'm arguing that's the reality of the, of the way to the marketplace for innovative new products and also often help for innovative new companies and that's different from propping up lame ducks but was there something utopian when you look back about the idea that the invisible hand would out and uh, governments could get out of the way and individual creativity would see to it that things did get to the market we certainly had an over optimistic view about how monetary policy would work i literally spent two and a half years in that part of the treasury trying to predict inflation on the basis of the growth of the money supply and it, I tell you it was bloody hard to do <laughs> we could never find a stable enough relationship and of course so we moved on you respond to the evidence I think for Margaret Thatcher uh, what we were doing then she never just thought you could allow things simply to the market I remember saying to her once you know why don't we commercialize the BBC maybe we should prioritize the BBC and she said to me but David she said it would be very tiresome if there were advertisements interrupting every TV <laughs> program you know a completely <laughs> practical mm. observation which m made a lot of sense so I it would be damaging mm. For a picture to be created, and I think this, this is very important of mm. Margaret Thatcher, it makes us sound more 
ideological mm. than she was. She was a fascinating combination. It was history, it was principle, and it was also political practice. Um, Rachel, I mean, one of the big themes in, in David's piece is that in the last, really since the financial crisis, not, not just with the change of government, the dying days of New Labour and then the coalition has started to realise that you need to set up co-funding between private and public sectors in order to get things out of universities and into the shops at some stage down the line, which, if it's true, is quite a big departure from um, the kind of not only Thatcher but also New Labour years. Does Mm. it feel to you, a couple of months into this government, like it's different from um, the economic orthodoxy of 20 years ago? I would go back to David and and Vince Cable's more proactive policies and redistributive policies. I mean, so moving forward from the Thatcherite era itself, and, and for me and sit in a different place politically. But for me, um, it's it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, we may need uh, a little bit more of it. And what I'm watching with this with the new government and, and within the last few months, who is benefiting from the economic growth and what mm. what is the distribution and the pattern, whatever the legacy and wherever we stand in it, the, the, the pattern of the last 30 years is that the benefits of growth and wealth and hard work and engagement in the economic, whatever, wherever you sit politically, everybody believes that you know economic growth should benefit everyone, has gone more and more towards capital than it has gone towards labour and towards salaries for ordinary people. And the indicators of what people will tolerate if poorer people just get poorer it does affect stability it does have an impact on many other aspects of ideas around both national and international unity and i would take the brexit vote Mm. and not the fact that donald trump's support exists and says what he does but the fact that people are now gathering around to vote for him as indicators of those kinds of forms of alienation and the difference between growing up under Thatcher, the difference between that and now is that there is a very big difference between a comfortable or hard-working or, if you like, the stereotype of the middle class who's benefiting uh, from growth and actually now this shrinking super-rich who are sucking up so much of, of global wealth. and, and Shrinking the, in terms of their number rather than Shrinking in terms of their number. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that distribution is different. David, you also make some connection here with the, the Brexit vote and the idea that prosperity is not being spread around the map as it might have been. Yeah, my summary of, of, the, of the Brexit vote was it was an alliance of the excluded and the insulated. And by the excluded, I do mean the people who haven't felt the benefits of economic growth in the past 20 years. I'm, I'm not quite as pessimistic about the trends because actually, since the crash in the financial services industry, uh, the reduction of bonuses meant that if anything we've seen a slight compression of pay and what we tried in the coalition which Theresa is carrying on is also to hold down pay in the organisations we do control in the public sector so that you don't have absurdly high public sector pay at the, for people at the top but nevertheless there were a lot of people who didn't benefit from globalisation they're the excluded and then there are the insulated which tends to be the older generation who've, who may be retired maybe own their house with the mortgage paid off who are left directly engaged in the current economy and have got um, entitlements to uh, continuing income and for them therefore the, the reality mm. of how do you export how's our economy going to perform was less intense and when you put those two together the excluded and the insulated, and you, and you begin to see how you get 52%. <laughs> and I think certainly one of the lessons from all this 
is we need to include more people in the benefits of capitalism. And I'm sorry, just one final reflection, again, on where Mrs. T was and how visionary she was. We certainly envisage, and she thought, that if you cut higher rates of tax, people at the top would not need such big pay increases. She thought one of the problems with the high rates of tax is it pushed up nominal pay demands, because if you're on a 60% or an 80% mm. or at 98% marginal rate, you need a hell of a lot of extra pre-tax income to enjoy the post-tax increase in your living standards. And she thought that as we reduce the higher rates, we would see less pressure for pay increases at the top. Do you think she envisaged global corporations operating in Britain would not be paying their taxes back into our exchequer? I don't remember that as an issue in the 80s, but certainly it's a very live and very legitimate issue now. And the the whole OECD exercise to stop shifting the tax base is one which, you know, we in Britain have quite rightly played a very um, leading role in. Yeah, it's a very serious problem. Joanne, I mean, you've studied, I imagine, um, governments from a long time ago getting things very wrong. And sometimes that happens because they do end up lapsing into being controlled by vested interests. When you read about industrial policies like this and partnerships with industries, do you worry that the industry might start telling the government what to do rather than the other way around? I think that's always a concern. One of the things that I I look at actually is, is the idea of advising a monarch and One of the things that happens in the 16th century is these advisors become more and more uh, influential. And one of the things that Moore was concerned about was self-interest. He he thought that self-interest had the power to tear a commonwealth apart. And so once self-interest is advising a monarch or in our more contemporary case, the government, it does have that, that power to alienate, to rip people apart, uh, whereas communal interest, more thought, was what held people together. So it was definitely a concern then as well. Don't you think, though, that that kind of optimism is a less solid basis for running a country in a constitution than the kind of checks and balances picture where we say we are all fallen people, we do all have low motivations. Mm-hmm. Let's try to construct a constitution that works even when people behave badly rather than one that works on the basis they're going to perform well. Certainly Moore didn't think that people would act solely out of this um, communal interest, that they would they would um, disregard their self-interest. One of the things that Moore says in Utopia is that you can't pull out pride by the root. Uh, you're going to have to work with people as they are. But he also did think that there would be certain individuals who would understand that communal interest was more important and would be able to to almost lead people by their pride, by their self-interest into more beneficial practices for the Commonwealth as a whole. So it was this real combination of a sort of idealised politics with a sense of realism. Now we started the last section and continued the last section with quite a lot of references to Britain's first female Prime Minister, which was back then quite an extraordinary thing. This summer we got number two, but Theresa May doesn't stand out quite so much on the gender front because there's already Angela Merkel and Nicola Sturgeon, and if her lungs hold up, there might soon be President Hillary Clinton too. <laughs> um, Rachel, you've written about women's place in democracy since the time of the suffragettes now a century ago. Um, am I right in saying... Just now, for whatever reason, we're in the midst of something of a breakthrough. <laughs> well, certainly, uh, certainly by numbers and seniority, and as you say, what I what I've uh, documented and, and analysed uh, in my article is that we have this this unprecedented moment where 
We have women who are in control uh, or in the top jobs, at least, of what might be argued to be sort of, you know, the key uh, Western democracies, Britain, Germany and America. And what also interests me is that it's not only in terms of those those parliamentary and governmental positions, but we're looking uh, at the possibility of Helen Clark, uh, of, formerly of New Zealand, uh, possibly becoming the first uh, Secretary General of the UN. Certainly, she seems to uh, be uh, one of the front runners. In fact, the two front running candidates are women. And at the same time, in other areas, we have women in leadership, uh, such as you know our own first. General Secretary of the TUC, Frances O'Grady, and TUC has its uh, 150th anniversary in 2018, and Frances is the, the first woman leader. And the ITUC, the International TUC, mm. has, a, has a woman woman General Secretary the first time. So certainly... In terms of the presence at, at that level, it's, it, it's very welcome and uh, it looks mainstream and I think it will stay that way. But that doesn't mean necessarily that of itself suggests that it will necessarily present policies or advances, not just for women, uh, but generally across questions of equality uh, for men, uh, for children, for families and, and, and specifically around redistribution. Jan, what do you think? Do you, do you see any reason why we've had this kind of breakthrough, you know, with women calling the shots maybe in Berlin, Washington, London all at once, and Edinburgh? Well, I think um, one of the things that's pointed out in the article is how this comes about uh, because of movements in the 1970s and the 1980s, um, the rise of uh, it being okay to say that we're that one is a feminist. And uh, one of the things you mentioned is is my Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and that he's a proud feminist, and it's it's starting to be okay. The more that we have women in positions of power as well, I think there's a snowball effect because we start to associate leadership with women. It starts to 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 be something that we can we can envision. So I I think that there is this um, effect from from the 1970s and 1980s. Speaking, though, of how it might not have positive effects uh, for women who aren't in those positions of power, there is, there is a similar moment in the 16th century, in the late 16th century. Suddenly, you get women all over Europe leading countries. Um, we have Elizabeth over here, Mary Queen of Scots, <laughs> Marie de Guise. It, it, across Europe, all of a sudden, uh, there are these women in positions of power. They actually have to sort of push back against the fact that they're women. Mm -hmm. And it often leads to disadvantaging women in other uh, social spheres because they can't be shown to be too feminine. And the the evidence is that that's exactly what some of our key women leaders have to do. They're very upfront, whether whether it's Clinton, whether it's Merkel, and indeed our own uh, Theresa May, are quite clear about the fact that they have to either tone down or put at a distance ideas of too much sort of explicit, not necessarily feminism, um, but but femininity of a Mm -hmm. certain sort. And one of the things, I mean, going back to your to, to your point about sort of pre-democratic women yeah. leaders, uh, or att- or at least attempts at democracy, is that for me it opens up that that core question, which is at the heart of it, which is on the one hand you have ideas of of, of equality, which is simply based on identity. So women women and often of, of, of with very similar class backgrounds or opportunities may want to have uh, equality with what the existing burden of being a man is. 
And to me, that is something very different to a feminist program. To me, feminism, a feminist, to say feminist is not an identity, it's a political program. And actually, crucially, it's an economic program. And it's when those when those policies and when those approaches are tied to aspects of policy across all uh, levels of government and civil society that we can see that they will make a difference. I'm not saying the obstructions and the challenges are not enormous. They are, and I have huge admiration for all these women across the political spectrum, including Prime Minister May, uh, for getting where they do in a very, very tough environment. Uh, But at the same time, I think we have to be realistic uh, about what the challenges are. I mean, make no mistake. I mean, this is this is a beautifully, beautifully laid out uh, article. But you will notice that every single face there is white, and we still look to see, other than Obama in America, a black leader of either woman or indeed male in you know in Western Europe. I think you have to be careful though of expecting all uh, feminine leaders to be kind of bearers of a feminist agenda. I mean, that is indeed a legitimate part of the public debate and how far you go. But the striking feature is surely how many of the moments are on the centre-right and how it's the centre-right that is providing these opportunities for leaders. And, I mean, Theresa May has made her reputation as a very tough and effective Home Secretary. The pervasive rise of women in politics means that one shouldn't treat them as all people who have a specific progressive agenda. It'll be for them individually to shape their own politics. David, I, I couldn't agree more, and that, that is part of my argument. But one of the reasons I would say that there is more emphasis now and there has been historically, although in the early days the, the, the leaders were, were t- tended to come more from the left, not accidentally before, before the Second World War and then what happened consequently, uh, but is that it's the nature uh, of the centre of the right is to be more conservative, small c, about the structure of the family, about structure of, of relationships. And therefore the challenges that women in those positions are going to make to the, to the fabric uh, of, of the balance of power are less challenging than someone who is is going to be coming from a position where they actually want to challenge some of those dynamics within how families are structured, what the distribution of, of labour, to put it another way, is within the family, so that those things are wrapped up very directly with a more conservative view of, of culture and society anyway. Let's just finally zone in for a minute on the question of family, which is often, you know, David, from the work you do at Resolution Foundation, I think it's true to say the economic disadvantage women face tends to kick in after they've had a first child, doesn't it? Over this last weekend, we've had the Sunday Times highlighting childless politicians, eight of them or something in a panel, all of whom were women, because it wouldn't be asked. I mean, it might be because women face disadvantages when they have kids, or it might be because people aren't so interested in... um, whether uh, male politicians have kids or not, as they are with women leaders. But do you think that there's still something very special there that has to be got over about women politicians and children if we're really to get used to them as well, the new course, normal? Well, Andrea Ledson strayed into this territory in an incredibly inept way at the start of the Tory leadership campaign, and it led her to withdraw from the contest. I think it is, it is the case that, looking at the labour market as a whole, though if a woman, it is still more likely to be a woman, withdraws the labour force for a time because you've had maybe your first child. Getting back onto the career ladder, just as it was before, is very tricky. And it does look to be the moment when women who, through their 20s, have been on an incredibly good career trajectory kind of fall significantly behind. And I, I do agree, and I think it's one of the biggest wastes in our 
jobs market in Britain today is the plight of women returners who just because they maybe they've been out for two years and, the, you know, it's really crude things. The company has replaced all the software and they come back and they find that there's been a set of changes and catching up with those changes has knocked them back. Or, they, or they've just lost contact with a group and a support network of their friends and colleagues in the same organisation. It can be as simple as that. Coming back as a woman returner is far tougher than it should be. Yes, and that's a real barrier. Any final thoughts, Rachel, on how that affects women in politics particularly? Well, I completely agree with David as a woman returner. And once she's back, uh, the the setup of how things are in the workplace and the differences in terms of, of women and in, uh, running families and, and, and having to actually have that incorporated. We've lost a lot of what we had before. Joanne was referring earlier to the 1960s and 70s. There were a lot of ideas then about how childcare education could be made to work more cohesively with the workplace and I think that is one place both in in politics whether whether it's in the house of commons itself uh, or indeed any uh, other areas the labor force that we're actually looking at what what are the child care opportunities uh, that are provided by the workplace not just that all being pushed back and privatized onto the family well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Joanne Paul, to David Willits and to Rachel Holmes. If you've enjoyed listening to what they've had to say, then please do dash out and buy the new October edition of Prospect, where you can read not only their pieces, but also get Will Self's take on why we're all warping into robots. And you can see what Joseph Stiglitz got to say about Donald Trump, Jeremy Corbyn and globalisation going awry. Even better, go to our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk and click on the subscribe button and buy yourself a year's worth of stimulation all at once. But for now, I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Thanks for lending us your ears. Listen out again next month. And for the moment, goodbye. Goodbye.